The scripture reading for today is Matthew 17, 1 through 8. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. For they, when they had lifted their eyes, they saw but no one but Jesus. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, David, for reading that scripture. I'm Mike Stroh, one of the pastors here. I'm going to add my word of welcome to everyone this morning, especially if you're a guest with us. We're so grateful that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that passage you just heard read, Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17. Well, I'm a big uh, movie guy. I love movies. I have for a long time, for as long as I can remember. One of my favorite things about going to the movies is sometimes the trailers that uh, are shown before the movie. Now, maybe I'm just weird, and I know in, in recent years uh, that's gotten a little tiresome. They play like 15 or 16, it seems like, trailers before the movie. goes on and on and on. But I'll qualify it to say I enjoy trailers of a movie that I'm looking forward to seeing. If it's a movie that I want to see, that I know is coming out, and finally the, the trailer drops, it's exciting to see, to get a glimpse of what's coming. Often the trailer will give us an idea of whether the movie is going to be any good or not, what the storyline is going to be. Now, my wife Libby doesn't much like trailers as much as I do. She often says after we've seen a trailer, I feel like I've just seen the movie. And that's a good point because they're trying to get your money and so they cram in all the exciting parts and oftentimes they even give you a strong hint of how it's going to all end if you pay attention. Well, in our text this morning, we see a preview, a trailer. Preview of coming attractions, if you will. This incredible moment in the New Testament, the transfiguration. The curtain is pulled back on the humanity of Jesus and we see his glory. The glory that the disciples would see after the resurrection. The glory that we will see when Jesus returns. Well, this passage further reveals Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And because of that, because of who we're convinced that he is by this point in Matthew's Gospel... And sorry for those of you who don't like spoilers, but Jesus wins. Okay? Continue our study of Matthew's gospel. We've seen in recent weeks Jesus being rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. We've seen him begin to foretell his own suffering and death and resurrection, which has greatly confused and troubled the disciples. That doesn't fit their mold, their expectation of who Messiah would be and what he would do. Last week in chapter 16... We saw Peter's great confession 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In chapter 17, this morning, we'll see Jesus confirm this identity in this incredible transfiguration scene. And so let's follow Jesus together up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, that we too might be transformed in his presence. Let's bow for prayer as we turn to this passage. Our Father, we come before you as we do every week, grateful for your presence with us, grateful for the ways that you are at work among us, grateful for this moment that we have to come together around your word. And so, eliminate the distractions that are in our hearts and in our minds, that we might put our focus on you for these few moments that we might lift you up in worship, that we might be transformed in the presence of Christ for his glory, and in his name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible open uh, to Matthew 17, again, you can turn there if you have a Bible, but let's first look real quick at the preceding context uh, in chapter 16. So we saw Peter make this confession last week, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. Right after that, Matthew writes in verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter, of course, famously argues with Jesus here. No way, Jesus. The Messiah can't do that. Well, Jesus, of course, says, get thee behind me, Satan, right? Just after this incredible proclamation of who Jesus is, uh, what a shift. Well, Jesus resets their expectations with this call in verse 24 to take up their cross and follow him. So not only must Messiah suffer and die, but he says, my followers, to even think about following me, they have to die to self. Not quite maybe what they wanted or expected. Look now at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So right before the transfiguration, this great passage that we just heard read, we have Jesus holding together his coming suffering and death, but also his glory and his return. And this promise, this strange promise he makes in verse 28 has been interpreted, understood in all sorts of ways. On first reading, it sounds like Jesus is saying, I will return, I'll come back sometime in the first century, and some of you will still even be alive. Well, we know that can't be right from other parts of Scripture, and of course, as we look back in history, but we know from other Scriptures, Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour when he's coming back. In fact, he says, only the Father knows. So it's best to understand this promise as really beginning at his resurrection, where Jesus is vindicated, where Jesus is then exalted. Jesus is given by the Father all authority in heaven and on earth. He says, coming in his kingdom, he's given the kingdom by the Father. But that's not all. Jesus says he's coming in glory, and then what happens immediately after? The transfiguration. He gives them a preview of coming attractions, this thing that he has just promised. And so now let's look there. In Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
Well, this mountain traditionally, if you've ever been to Israel or if you're into Bible geography uh, at all, this is thought to be Mount Tabor. But that's unlikely for several reasons, which we don't have time to get into. It's more likely this is the slopes of Mount Hermon somewhere. Uh, It says, Matthew says he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Well, there was a colony on Mount Tabor at this time, so they would not have been by themselves probably. But more likely Mount Hermon, which is also much closer to Caesarea Philippi in the passage we just saw them at in the previous verses. But anyway, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. The word transfigured is metamorpho. That sounds familiar. Of course, that's where we get our word metamorphosis. The essential form of Jesus, his appearance, was transformed. Fully God in human flesh, pulling back the curtain just a bit, showing his glory. We see a similar vision of Jesus in John's vision in Revelation chapter 1. And at the end of Revelation, John writes that of our eternal home where we will live with him forever, he says it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So Jesus is radiant with light, with glory. And not only that here, Moses and Elijah show up here just shooting the breeze with Jesus, it seems. I don't know about you, I hope in eternity we'll be able to sort of look back through time and like a highlight reel of some of these biblical events that would have been just so incredible to witness. This would make the highlight reel, I hope. And to hear just a piece of what the three of them were talking about, wouldn't you love to know what they were saying to each other? But why Moses and Elijah? This is a strange scene, it's incredible. Jesus is shining with glory and all of a sudden there's Moses and Elijah here, why? There's all sorts of explanations for this that are pretty compelling if you want to dig into this a little deeper. But Moses was the lawgiver, wasn't he? Elijah was viewed as the greatest of the prophets. Jesus said about himself that the law and the prophets testify to him. So very literally, personally, we see that happening in this incredible scene. The law and the prophets testifying to Jesus. There was also building expectation, both from hints in Scripture and also from some of the rabbinic tradition. There was this building idea that Moses and Elijah somehow would factor into the return, or excuse me, the coming of Messiah. So it seems that that's happening here. But all in all, the message is incredibly uh, clear. Jesus is who he said he was. If we don't get anything else out of this text, let's get that. Jesus is who he said he was. Remember, the disciples are shocked, they're confused. Why, Jesus, do you keep saying you're going to suffer and die? I just don't get that. So the timing of this is at least in part to anchor them for what is coming, when their faith will be tried the most. All three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include the transfiguration. So it's this vital scene in the life and the earthly ministry of Jesus as he reveals more of his identity. I don't know how you picture this scene in your mind. I find sometimes it helps my biblical imagination to see how artists, some of the great artists in history, have captured biblical scenes. Here is how Raphael captured the transfiguration. Not the Ninja Turtle, by the way, but his namesake, the great Renaissance painter Raphael. He worked on this painting for four years, and he died before he could even finish it at the age of only 37 
Raphael's students finished it, and some of the details around the edges, you can, might probably not from this distance notice, but it's a slightly different uh, in terms of the detail around the outside. But even unfinished, Raphael considered this painting his masterpiece. He considered it his masterpiece and had it displayed even above his own deathbed. Notice Christ at the center, radiating light and glory. Notice the contrast of the darkness and the shadows on the fringes of the picture. Notice Peter, James, and John just falling down in awe at this incredible scene. Now we'll come back to this painting in a few minutes, but let's pick up the story in verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I like Peter. Do you like Peter? He's caught up in the moment. He blurts this out. I, I love that Luke in his version adds that Peter didn't know what he was saying. As if even Luke is like, oh, Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter sometimes speaks and acts before he thinks. Can you relate to that or do you know anybody like that? It's not in the text, but I imagine Moses or Elijah being like, dude, you're kind of ruining the moment here. Just, just give us a minute. But before we're too critical of Peter, sometimes we're a bit too critical of Peter, I think. Before we're too critical of him, I think we should realize his comment isn't quite maybe as boneheaded as it first appears. The word tent or tabernacle here or booth, as in the feast of booths or tabernacles, when the people of Israel would make these temporary shelters to remind themselves uh, of their time wandering in the wilderness. Well, why would Peter bring this up now? In Zechariah chapter 14, the prophet Zechariah is giving this vision of coming Messiah. When Messiah comes, Zechariah says that all nations will celebrate the feast of booths or tabernacles. So Peter might have this in mind. Hey, Jesus is glorified. Moses and Elijah are here. You're bringing the kingdom back to Israel. Let's get this party started. Let me make some tents. So he's a little confused, right, about how all this fits together. He doesn't see the timing. But let's at least give Peter an A for effort, okay? Maybe a B plus. Let's not quite be so harsh on him as we're tempted to be. But verse 5, I love this. He was still speaking when? Peter's literally in the middle of saying this suggestion when God interrupts him. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. So just like in Mount Sinai, God spoke to Moses from a cloud, a bright cloud, God's glory on display. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So the voice of God from the clouds, repeating what he said at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son. But here adding this command, listen to him, listen to him. There might be an element here, a little bit of Peter, shh, listen to Jesus. Okay, Peter, let's have less talking and more listening. There might be some of that here. But there's more to it. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is giving the law again to Israel. He's nearing the end of his life, and he gives this prophecy of the coming Messiah. He says, God will raise up another one like me. And what does he say about Messiah? Moses writes, to him you shall listen. So in this moment here, with Moses present, 
Moses gets to witness the fulfillment of his own prophecy where God speaks from heaven. He says, this is the one, Moses, centuries before you were talking about. This is the one. Everybody listen to him. Well, the disciples, of course, as you and I all would be, are terrified at this scene, at this voice from heaven. But Jesus comes over, he touches them. Get up, guys, don't be afraid. And they look around, and the scene is over as quickly as it began, and they're alone again with Jesus. It's an incredible scene to imagine, but what are we to make of it? Both for the disciples and for us, because they didn't stay up on that mountain very long. They came right back down, they continued their journey, they continued their ministry. So let's remember this event didn't happen in a vacuum like all the stories in the gospel and scripture. It's part of a much bigger story. Remember where the disciples are right now. They're struggling inwardly with Jesus' insistence that he must suffer and die. They just can't square that with their expectations. So Jesus prepares his disciples for what's ahead, how that will push their faith to the limit. So he takes these three guys up the mountain. He gives them this little glimpse of his glory. Let's them see with their own eyes Moses and Elijah testifying to Messiah, confirming his identity. And if that weren't enough, the voice of God himself speaking from the clouds. And the message comes through loud and clear, doesn't it? No matter what's ahead, listen to this guy. Listen to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. You don't have this figured out. You're certainly not going to understand it then. It's going to be hard. But listen to him. Stay close to him. So the transfiguration is this incredible, it's this exciting display, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense on its own, does it? But when we see it in the light of what comes after the cross, both events begin to illuminate each other. We begin to realize that the glory of Jesus is not only on display in the dramatic and the powerful and the brightness and the shining, but his glory is on display in a surprising and even more incredible way in the humility, in the weakness, in the suffering, in the laying down of himself for us. Listen to the way N.T. Wright describes the parallels of these two scenes, the transfiguration and the cross. Here on a mountain is Jesus, revealed in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus, revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white, there they have been stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes, representing the law and the prophets. There he is flanked by two brigands, representing the level to which Israel had sunk in rebellion against God. Here a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There darkness comes upon the land. Here Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is, there he's hiding in shame after denying he even knows Jesus. Here a voice from God himself declares that this is his wonderful son. There a pagan soldier declares in surprise that this really was God's son. So as great as the transfiguration is, this moment points us to the cross. And at the cross, we can look back on the transfiguration with a fuller understanding of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. See, in the Christian life, I don't know about you, but we can be tempted to idolize the mountaintop experiences, can't we? 
These exciting times where we think the glory of Christ is only found there. We say, oh, I want to get back to when it was like this. We want the emotional highs of worship. We want the miraculous answers to prayer. We want the blessings to flow our way. And yes, amen, we want all of that, and that is good. And we praise God when that happens. But Jesus took his disciples right back down the mountain. God leads us into the valleys too, and there was a valley coming for these disciples. There was an even deeper valley coming for Jesus, and he calls us to follow him both directions. The transfiguration was amazing, but it was just this really brief experience witnessed by only three of the disciples. And on the way down, Jesus even says, hey guys, don't say anything about this until I'm raised from the dead. This was not to entertain them. This was not to amaze them. This certainly wasn't to draw a crowd. It was to establish them for the valley. God said, listen to Jesus. Listen to him. And what did Jesus just tell them to do? Take up their cross and follow him. So don't think you can live your Christian life on the mountaintop. Don't believe the lie that God intends for you to live your best life now. Whatever that means. In Christ, our best life is coming later, isn't it? Now, there's an element of spiritual maturity here that is steady. That is following Christ, whether he's leading us up the mountain into great blessing or down the mountain into suffering. There's a spiritual maturity that follows Christ steadily in both directions. We begin to have spiritual sight to see the glory of Jesus Christ not only revealed in the power and the blessing and the exciting dramatic things, but maybe even more so in our hard times, in our sufferings, in our grief. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not sure what that means even to be a Christian, the invitation for you is to come to Jesus and find life in him. To find forgiveness for your sins by his grace alone. To see his glory displayed not only in this bright shining event, but even more fully on the cross when he died to give you life. Now Jesus rose again and he ascended to the Father, so now he can be present with us in our moments of suffering and in our weakness through the Spirit. This is a Savior who understands our pain, who is with us in our pain, who experienced the depth of human suffering himself, all for us. And so, believer, we have to be willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads, to be transformed in his presence. And if you follow Jesus very long, you know that most often our times of deepest spiritual growth and transformation don't happen on the mountaintops. As great as those times are, oftentimes they happen in the valleys. The word translated transfigured here in our passage shows up two other times outside the Gospels and the transfiguration stories, meaning to be changed, to be transformed. Paul uses it in Romans 12 to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's the word. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says it again in 2 Corinthians 3, he writes, with this interesting parallel to our passage this morning and also to Moses on Mount Sinai, Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as we follow close to Jesus, as we behold his glory, we are transformed, and that is discipleship. That's what it means to follow Jesus, being transformed in his presence, both on the mountain and in the valley, wherever he leads us. Well, I said we'd come back to Raphael's painting because I only showed you half of it. Here's the full image. You might want to Google it this week and see some of the details uh, up a little closer. But you'll notice there's really two scenes depicted here in this painting called Transfiguration. The top half is, of course, what we saw. It's the Transfiguration, the passage we just read. But the bottom half, even more than half really, is what's happening at the same time down below at the bottom where the rest of the disciples are struggling. They're trying without success to heal a boy possessed with a demon. Jesus is about to come down the mountain and heal this boy a little bit later in our text, and you can look at that later this week. But notice the contrast here between the top and the bottom. The light and the glory at the top, but at the bottom there's darkness, there's confusion. You can see it on their faces, there's struggle. Jesus is needed at the bottom. The glorified Christ is needed there too, and he's about to show up. Thankfully, Jesus meets us in our struggle. Jesus meets us in our suffering. He is present and at work in our doubts, in our disappointments, in our griefs, in our suffering, just as much, if not more, than he is present with us when there's some big dramatic blessing in our lives. The transfiguration gives us a glimpse of what's to come. It's like a preview of coming attractions. It points us to the cross, yes, but it also points us to the resurrection, to a glorified Christ with all authority in heaven and earth. A Messiah who's coming again to establish his kingdom in fullness. This is the Savior that we follow. So let's obey the word of the Father in this text and listen to him. No matter what's ahead of us, no matter what you're going to face this week, whether it's expected or unexpected, Whether God is leading you up to a mountaintop experience or down into a valley, let's trust Jesus. Let's listen to him. Let's stay close to him that wherever he leads, we can be transformed in his presence. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for a Savior who not only showed his glory in power, but also in weakness and suffering. And so give us faith to follow where he leads us, both us as individuals, as families, as a church together. Give us faith to see his glory more clearly in our abundance and in our blessing and in our answers to prayer, but also in our struggle and in our disappointment and in our pain. Give us faith to live as citizens of his kingdom now and grow our longing for his return. For the glory of Christ in whose name we pray, amen.